0: Boz Dreisinger is the founding academic director of John Jay's Prison to College Pipeline program. The program offers college courses and re-entry planning to incarcerated men at Otisville Correctional Facility, and more broadly, works to increase access to higher education for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals. Professor Dreisinger moonlights as a journalist and critic, writing about Caribbean culture, race-related issues, travel, music, and pop culture for outlets such as the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Wall Street Journal. She has also produced on-air segments about music and global culture for NPR. Professor Dreisinger has authored two books focused on criminal justice reform, Incarceration Nations, A Journey to Justice in Prisons Around the World, and Near Black, White to Black Passing, American culture.
1: Um, we're spending more than $80 billion on corrections. We're spending more on corrections than we're spending on education and, um, and health care. And you have to really look at this and say, if this isn't working and we're still going broke off of it, and it's morally and ethically so problematic, why are we doing this?
0: In this compelling conversation with Ivy's co-founder, Barry Merrick, Boz illuminates the history of mass incarceration in the United States and draws on her experience at the forefront of the movement towards restorative justice to reveal how we can fix a broken prison system and generate new opportunities for reform. Please enjoy our conversation with Boz Dreisinger. listening to the ivy podcast by ivy the social university we are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people ideas and experiences in the world for more information about the ivy community and to find out about events happening near you visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com
2: being on the show super excited for this conversation thanks for having me it's good to be here my pleasure so uh, criminal justice reform it's a very important thing in the United States it's a huge topic also around the world and your experiences have enabled you to see this uh, the issues around the criminal justice reform from a multitude of different perspectives so to maybe get us started uh, I'd love to kind of hear how you got into the subject in the first place
1: Sure, I was working, I still work as a journalist among the many hats that I wear. Um, I'm a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, uh, but I also write about music, arts, culture, race-related issues, a whole host of things. And I was uh, about 15 years ago doing some writing about hip hop and and prison and hip hop and criminal justice and a little bit of reggae and criminal justice. And long story short, um, through that and some documentaries that I did, I started getting letters from people in prison who had read my work or seen my work and were interested, and uh, they invited me in to, to teach, uh, just as an educational volunteer. And I did that, and the very first time that I went into prison, with uh, I was the guest of a Latino organization that was trying to do progressive education work behind bars, and I taught a class and was stunned and moved by what I saw there, and it pretty much changed my life.
2: Why is criminal justice reform important?
1: It is important on so many different levels. Uh, It's important on a moral level, first and foremost, because fundamentally how we respond when harm happens in society speaks volumes about us as a society. And if we are a truly just society, then we should be proud of the way that we uh, create safe communities and the way that we respond when harm happens. And when we're throwing 2.3 million people behind bars as a response to harm and subjecting them to all kinds of harmful conditions there lack of rehabilitative programming further harmful conditions when they come home we are not being it is not moral and ethical as a society now on a practical level it's also not working our recidivism rates are extremely high in hovering in the 60s 60 something percents um, we're spending more than 80 billion dollars on corrections we're spending more on corrections than we're spending on education and um and healthcare. and you have to really look at this and say if this isn't working and we're still going broke off of it and it's morally and ethically so problematic why are we doing this
2: so there's a moral angle there's a practical angle and yet yeah, the question really is why why is it so broken um What what are the key themes when you kind of think about the cause of all the issues that we face?
1: So the the perhaps you know the biggest one that sits at the heart of it is the issue of race and criminality and the way that our mass incarceration our system of mass incarceration particularly targets Uh, black and brown people in this country historically has and without getting overly academic about this and I I recommend everyone read the new Jim Crow which elucidates this very very carefully or see the movie 13th the documentary which also maps out how really in this country what we did was go from a system of slavery into a system of Jim Crow into a system of mass incarceration and so um, and actually I've seen this globally which we'll get into but there is this theme when it comes to incarceration of uh, criminalizing those groups deemed other. And sometimes that's criminalizing poor people. Sometimes it's criminalizing people of color uh, and then mass incarcerating them as after criminalizing them and usually in order to produce a labor force. So there, and hence this term prison industrial complex, which speaks to the ways that our system of justice, which is supposed to be this moral ethical system, is caught up in all kinds of capitalistic motives, such that people are making money off it. Private prison companies are making money off of it Um, in the state system phone companies are making money off of it etc and we can go on about the ways that capitalism is benefiting from this system that is harming so many and is damaging communities Uh, so it's a system of social control and it's a system of money making and um, and capitalism
2: okay very interesting so when you think about solutions right looking to the future what do you think, you know, where do you think the solution is actually lie? Because from what you're saying, it seems like a very systemic, ingrained um, outcome. But it's not like this everywhere. Um, and so, like, having seen everything that you've seen, where do you think are, like, what are the key themes when it uh, comes to looking for solutions?
1: Yeah, so... It is, I mean, it's, it's a beast of a system, and it's not easy to talk about, okay, how do we fix this? There is no, I, I, I wish that I had the answer. There is no the answer. There are a lot of different answers, and there are a lot of interesting um, and, and powerful people trying to promote these answers. Uh, but for one, I think we have to recognize that not only is this, can it, can it be done differently elsewhere, but we've actually only been doing this for a couple hundred years Uh, Mass incarceration at the numbers, at the rates that we have now, that's just a couple decades. Um, And using prison as an exclusive response to crime, the way we do, is a relatively recent phenomenon. It was invented with America in the 19th century. Uh, And I get into this history in my book because it was a revelation even to me that this is the case. So we have to recognize that that which is done can be undone. We built this system. The rest of the world followed suit. Uh, so we foisted this system upon the world and if we did it, we can undo it. There's, there can be another way. And so I think it's useful when talking about prisons and harm and, um, and repair to think about the before, the middle and the after to the problem. So the before means how do I create access to education and social services for the people who need it most. Uh, because if we do that, then we're likely to prevent them from going to prison in the first place. And this applies, of course, particularly to young people who are especially vulnerable in communities. But really, how do we create access to education and access uh, to jobs, to housing, to health care, really basic needs? So we right. so push to prevent for that crime yes. in the first place. yeah, okay. so that's the before. Um, the middle is, okay, so we've got these people caught in in our you know in our clutches in the prisons. What do we do with them once they're there? And this is a lot of people, 2.3 million is more than population of many countries. So what are we doing with them? Um, And how do we respond to them? How do we actually engage in corrections? We talk about a department of corrections, not a department of punishment. So how can we correct? Um, my avenue through is through education. I'm an educator, so I teach in prisons. I work in that context. I promote education among people in prison and people coming home. But how do we think about repairing you know, the, the, um, the individual in, by providing access to education, perhaps actually, I mean, providing drug treatment? Um, treating drugs as a public health issue and not a criminal justice one. That's a radical notion that would almost um, almost have our prison population. Um, treating mental illness, again, as a, a case of health and not a case of crime and, and harm. Um, so how we address you know, when harm occurs in society and how we deal with that. Uh, so that's the middle piece. And then the after piece is we've got people cycling out of prisons and jails every single day. How do we create access for them? How do we allow them access to opportunity, to what we call second chances, which to me is a misnomer because most people in prison didn't have a first chance. So it's not really a second chance, it's a first chance at education, jobs, success in the broad sense of the term. What we do now in the U.S. is really create barriers for them when they come home at every turn in terms of jobs, housing, access to healthcare, access to opportunities, access to worlds that would allow them to uh, to really shift their lives in dramatic ways. So that's the before, middle, and after kind of in a nutshell snapshot.
2: Okay, so definitely want to dive into all three. Before we do that, let's really dive into the history and the philosophy actually of, you know, how different societies have thought about criminal justice. Uh, so really rewinding time. So and uh, like, let's step all the way out actually. So based on everything you've seen, like what what are the different ways in which to even think about crime? So when you gave this framework now of three different levels so what do you do before, during and after, um, this, this kind of, that must have been the same questions that every society has always asked. Yes. You know, how do you stop it from happening in the first place? What do you do when it happens? And what do you do to stop it from happening again? So can you give us a, like, a bit of a, like, a broader perspective on like the philosophy behind criminal justice? Definitely.
1: You're talking my language. I love to talk about the philosophy of this because I think it gets lost. A lot of times people just want to start fixing, but you need to really explore what are the ethical concepts behind all this stuff, right? So, um... Prisons were, before prisons, for one, we have to distinguish between crime and harm. I often talk more about harm that's caused in a community because we, uh, crime is a legally defined version of harm. But drugs are a crime. Uh, marijuana in many contexts is a crime. I don't know that necessarily we'd all agree that that's harm. So if we're really gonna go back before the system that we have now, we have to say what, how did society, many societies respond when harm occurred? So uh, some of these were what we would now call pretty inhumane ways like corporal punishment, uh, flogging, Death penalty, uh, eye for an eye in the literal sense, you know, you stole, chop off the hands. So some versions of that. Banishment was a big one, which is, uh, you know, how Australia, for instance, many many countries around the world were um, so-called convict colonies. They were, if you did something wrong, and people often forget this could mean I stole a loaf of bread and then I'm shipped off on a boat to Australia to work the land there. So banishment was a big one. But a, a really fundamental approach to harm was what is now known as restorative justice approaches, restorative approaches, which were a way of saying, okay, harm has happened in this community. So uh, between these two people, whether it's I killed your daughter or I stole your the apples from your farm, and so the society would come together and engage in a series of dialogues about this act of harm and come up with some kind of contract whereby the person who did the harm could pay back, literally and metaphorically, the, in order to make up for the harm, to restore, to offer reparations, to repair. Um, and it often bonded the two people together very closely for many years because it meant I was either working for you or however that contract was worked out. So it was actually a chance to say harm, to this rift in society is an opportunity to actually bring us closer together. And that's the fundamentals of restorative justice. Now, in the 19th century, well, actually, in the 18th century, first there started to be uh, ideas floating around about this concept of a penitentiary, uh, from the word penitence, so religious in in basis. Uh, enlightenment thinkers were really interested in finding mathematical formulas for uh, dealing with crime, and this is the era of the guillotine in France. It's the era of flogging and banishment in England. And there were these philosophers who said, "Well, we should actually come up with like a factory-like setting where we like fix human beings and produce better human beings." So it was very much based on ideas of capitalism that were floating around at the time, ideas of scientific accuracy, six uh, theft equals six years, you know, mathematical equations and sentences and things like that. So they were floating these ideas around America in the early 19th century, 1820s to be exact, decides we're this new nation, we're super progressive, so we are going to enact this. We're going to build the first two modern penitentiaries. And America did that in Pennsylvania and in New York. And they are still representative of kind of the two... Models that prisons are are based on, one the Auburn system, which was in New York, and Auburn is like a factory. The, the um, prisoners worked in lockstep cohorts and produced things, uh, produced some of the the weapons used in the Civil War, for instance, and um, you know that, that was the capitalistic model and then you had Eastern Penitentiary in uh, in Pennsylvania. And Eastern was built like a monastery. It was solitary confinement was born there. So everyone was in their separate little cell with a Bible, literally. And, uh, and, and, the thought was, we're going to lock you up with the Bible and you will reform. Now, these two things were both enormously expensive, and I think this is where we start to see a strain in prison history that exists to this day, where the government spent lots of money to build this. In fact, there was, there was uh, running water and electricity at Eastern before there was at the White House. So we were p- spending, we've been spending money on prisons for centuries now. Um, And so these two models were seen as these like really progressive things. So leaders from around the world came to see them, especially Eastern Eastern was considered a a marvelous feat. So you had all these leaders saying, Oh, we're going to build the same thing. And so as a result, over 300 countries around the world are now have prisons based on, rather 300 prisons around the world, are based on Eastern. And through colonialism, you can see how this would spread very, very broadly. I mean, England controlled so much of the world at the time, so they then imposed this system on the world. And that is how you had the proliferation of this model of of prisons and they often worked in conjunction with slavery uh, in the nineteenth century in the colonies. They were a way of again social control over um, over the colonized and they were also edifices that physically represented. The Western imposition onto these places, and I've been in them all around the world, and it is quite a thing to see this American-looking prison in Rwanda, in Uganda, um, in Brazil, etc.
2: Okay, fascinating. So, how did we go from those two models, starting up in the U.S., to now uh, kind of a global model that's been emulated everywhere? Um, like, what, what? So, if you could just kind of like connect the dots between, like, how that started and then where we got to, especially in the last couple of decades where it became truly mass incarceration.
1: So we used that model, and the rest of the world followed suit, as it became the exclusive response to crime. Whereas prisons, there have always been jails, there have always been holding cells, but they were used more um, as, as a path to justice rather than justice itself. So it was, we'll hold someone here while we figure out a course of, of, of justice to deal with them. Now, prisons then became the exclusive response. In other words, do the crime, do the time, sentences, and all of that develops again here and also in the rest of the world. Uh, what happened in the 70s, and again, there's lots of academic books on this, there's lots of mainstream books now about this, is that you started to see sentences getting longer and longer, mandatory minimum sentences, the war on drugs, the fact that the war on drugs targeted specific drugs that were uh, more prevalent in communities of color, thereby landing them with long sentences. So we started locking more people up, more and more people up, and we started keeping them there longer. Um, truth and sentencing laws, versions of them, were passed all over the country that kept people, you know, in their sentences. Uh, America has some of the longest sentences in the world. There's almost no other country that can compete with how we dole out decades for crimes and lock people up for longer. So it was a combination of forces primarily uh, related to the war on drugs, but not exclusively, just around giving people longer sentences, responding immediately with prison and not with diversion programs or alternatives to incarceration programs, and then parole boards that are keeping people inside for longer and longer. And then what we also saw is that America started to uh, export other aspects of, of our prison model. So in the 1980s, and the late 80s, you saw the development of the supermax model, extremely uh, solitary confinement based prisons where people are locked in their cells for 22 hours a day with a lack of programming. Um, that model got exported to at least a dozen countries. We started to see also in the 80s, of course, as the prison population is booming, um, no coincidence, it's a money-making opportunity. So you have the birth of private prison industries, private prison companies here in the U.S. that then became uh, replicated around the world as well. The U.K. has a very strong private prison industry. The um, Australia has the largest percentage of people in prisons, in private prisons around the world. So those are all... Um, And that's where we get to kind of the carceral beast that we're at today and also where we get to, we're seeing all of these practices replicated in other parts of the world.
2: Right, And I I assume that some countries, some societies haven't taken this path.
1: No, um, everyone's taken the path in so far as they've, you know, they've all got prisons (laughs) one one way or another. The question is how, A, what do those prisons look like? What do they do? How do they operate? You know, the middle piece of the Mm -hmm. equation and how much are they used as opposed to other devices? I mean, I also hate the term alternative to incarceration because as far as I'm concerned, incarceration should be an alternative to incarceration. It should be the last resort. Um, because again, for ethical reasons and also for practical reasons, how can we find other ways to um, to, to deal with someone's harm? Restorative practices, treatment, rehab, etc. So. Uh, there are lots of countries that don't rely on prisons as heavily as we do. The latest one to, to garner headlines is what we're seeing in the Netherlands, where there's empty prisons because they're they're not sending people to prison the way that we are. They're relying on things like fines and community supervision and um, other methods. So they've, there's one prison that's become a hotel there, so they've got empty prisons. Uh, in Norway, there's, and an actually throughout Scandinavia, the prisons I saw firsthand. We're in Norway, but there's something called the open prison, which looks so unlike a prison as to be basically worthy of another name. It's like a campus. And the individuals in them come and go and work jobs on the outside and are connected to their communities and their families while they're incarcerated and therefore much lower recidivism rates than what we do, which is essentially respond to harm by creating further harm. A, A fundamental hypocrisy that doesn't benefit us. Because when you further harm people who have harmed, they're likely to commit more harm, not less, right? Again, kind of a 101 equation, a no duh uh, equation. And yet that's a really dramatic thing to people is perpetuating the cycle of harm doesn't benefit us. So there are some countries that have started to move away. I mean, the Norway model, and not only 30% of the prisons in Norway are, uh, are open in that way. So it's not as if that's their norm. Um, But there is definitely an ethos of number one, strong social services, what I was mentioning in terms of the before, that prevents people from committing crimes in the first place. Um, there is, it is a very equal society as opposed to America's very unequal society, as opposed to many countries in Africa with extreme incarceration rates and conditions, extreme inequality. No accident there. It's another sort of 101 equation. Extreme inequality produces crime. And then Norway is also creative in thinking about other ways to deal with harm when it happens. Um, and once somebody does have to be um, incarcerated in some capacity, there's a lot of programming. There's a lot of true corrections happening. There's the potential for this open prison, and there's lots of education inside as well.
2: Okay, so let's let's really go through the three buckets now. So for the prior to crime being committed, the preventative measures, the first bucket. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know exactly you know. What is the main issue, like where the U.S. is failing at prevention, um, and then also, you know, what how other countries deal with it, or how the how can the U.S. fix it, and maybe with some comparative mm-hmm. um, examples of different countries when they do a good job. So let's start with that one, and then we can move through the other two.
1: So, um, social services and education. There are communities in this country that just have a sore, glaring lack of decent social services um, and especially decent education. Education is everything and I and you know I'm biased I come at this from an educational perspective but uh, if you give people good schools, you are reducing their chance of committing crime. Dramatically, and there I could throw out statistics, but I don't even think we need them. It's sort of common sense, you know. You give people access to opportunity, so building schools, um, building strong schools, building alternative schools for alternative kinds of learners in commute That that is really everything. Um, as opposed to, I mean, we talk about the school to prison pipeline. That's certainly the opposite of that, whereby we're involving. You know, you're you're setting people up for a path directly into the criminal justice system by responding to things that happen in schools as if they're happening you know, in a, in a law enforcement capacity, um, instead of responding in a restorative way, instead of working with young people to create pathways to opportunities for them and lack of mentorship. Um, lack of after-school services that are of quality and not just here we'll throw you on a basketball court. So um, really starting there in in the educational realm. I brought up Norway as an example I think they do that very well Um, and I think I mean we do that well in the US just not in communities of color not in poor communities so we have the capability of doing this of spreading our resources out more Um, but Unfortunately, we just don't do that.
2: Right. Just, um, just so we get more specific on the we part of this, so what part of it do you think it specifically falls to the government? What part do you think falls to private enterprise? Like what can companies do about it? Uh, and then also private individuals, like how, what can someone do if you're not in those right. communities in the first place? So I just want to get your perspective on like, you know, really separating the different units of action that could be taken.
1: Yeah, that's useful. I, I I, mean, in a perfect world, to me, there shouldn't be a place for private enterprise when it comes to education. I don't like, for instance, charter schools and things like that. The govern- It should be the government's responsibility to have quality educational services in every community. And I do believe that we can do that, you know, as a country unfortunately that's not the case and so there is a place given that for people to step in and I think they can step in number one by as advocates you know by by pushing politicians and local it's a very local thing education is so local and um, so you can learn about school districts and uh, inf- push for changes around budgeting and who's getting what so I think for for folks listening who want to get involved you can you can advocate uh, on behalf of school districts, after school programming, see who's getting the money and who isn't. Um, and that said, too, I think there's definitely a place for our organizations that deal with mentoring, that have after-school programming, that create access to opportunities for individuals from these communities whose whole world is just their five-block radius. So being involved with those, I mean, Big Brother, Big Sister is one mm-hmm. really you know obvious example, but there are lots of them in local communities that people could find out about. Right. But in a perfect world, I wouldn't want those to exist because the government does its job.
2: Right. Maybe this is a bit of a naive question, but I mean... Of course, you know the government should do a better job. People should advocate. It seems like a no-brainer. You know, better education. Who doesn't want that for everyone? I mean, like very few. Most people would say, yeah, everybody's better off if there's less crime, more opportunities for everybody. But somehow, someway, we got like this is where we are. It doesn't seem to be getting too much better. Right. Like from at least an outsider's perspective. So, what kind of like a shock to the system? Like, what can actually really change? Like what, what money, do you need to, money, and, and money where would and that better, come from?
1: So the way that budgets, you know, with, without getting overly complicated yeah. on budget structures, um, but the way that budgets are structured is that richer neighborhoods have better schools. What if, but what if that weren't the case? What if there were a more equal distribution of, um, of budgetary funds so that if this in this very wealthy school, school district, we took some of your money and gave it to the neighboring school district that doesn't have that money? What if we restructured how we thought about, and that's what equal distribution of wealth comes down to. I mean, you know, I sound like a socialist because in many respects, it's a socialistic approach. It's saying you have lots of money, we have none. Share.
2: What about, um, I was just at an educational technology conference in Salt Lake City two days ago. Um, There was a lot of individuals who were like so passionate about reforming the education system, but there's also a lot of conversation of insane numbers being spent per student in highly underperforming schools as well so it's super expensive and it doesn't seem like it's the shortage of money but how it's also used so i was just curious like what gets to change that so you know because i guess money goes only so far in terms of also like I, i you probably have all the figures also on how much it costs to Run these prisons just because a ton of money goes into it doesn't mean that
1: it it's done well. Yeah, exactly. No, that's point taken. I think that's really important, Um, and that's why I also say. And I think you know, I mean, I'm a you know, I work in prisons and education, right? But I think more structurally around prison reform because that's what I'm doing more on a daily basis. But it also becomes they have something in common, and that's who's who's your staff. You know how who runs your prisons? Who runs your schools? become is everything right and so who are we recruiting as teachers and as corrections officers and as police officers in this country um, if if you ask me we're not recruiting what we could be uh, and part of that has to do with pay if it were a better paying job if it were a better supported job then we could attract you know the the, the best and the brightest to these most critical professions I'm not sure you know doctors educators, police out- keepers of peace and justice, like, those are some pretty important jobs. Yeah. So how can we better spend the money? How can we move that cheese yeah. around so that we're actually attracting the best? Yeah. That's what makes for, I mean, a classroom at the end of the day is most, first and foremost, wherever it is, however much money exists in that school is about who is standing in, yeah. in that class and leading it.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm a huge believer in, Pretty much everybody listening to this, you know, it's everybody kind of remembers their great teachers who inspired them and so forth. It just seems to me, I'm trying to get my head around, like, what can you, like, given this is where it is, like, what's going to cause real change to happen? Like, and since you live this on both, like, you're in the education system, you're focused on also criminal reform. I was just curious whether you had... Any thoughts for, like, what will make people wake up? Or, like, what would make teaching, for example, a higher-paid occupation in the U.S.? Any thoughts on that?
1: What if, I mean, what if we agitated, again, local governments to allocate budgets better? I mean, I've long had—maybe this exists already, or maybe somebody listening, mm-hmm. <laughs> some wonderful Ivy member is going to um, invent this. But if we all understood exactly how budgets work and how money was getting moved around and where, we— could work wonders because we could start pushing for, you know, budgetary allocations in places where they should be, and so, for instance, move paying teachers more, um, and if we could advocate local governments to do that, uh, and the same is true about corrections and legal systems. But I think for most people, there isn't that isn't common knowledge, and it isn't easy to just pull up the budget. And but what if there were an app that helped us n- navigate that and then advocate? as a response to that
2: right and uh just you briefly mentioned it but sometimes obviously market forces you know there's a lot of good they can do there's harm that they can cause but sometimes what market forces do well when it's set up correctly is to incentivize people you know so people who are getting well-paying jobs it's because well companies care about people having those jobs and they'll pay up for them um you mentioned about the prison system and market forces working negatively there. Right. Um just curious whether like in education specifically you can s- you see any way in which market forces, especially when it comes to preventative, you know, making sure people stay on a good, valuable path. Um, if there is a place for again, like private enterprise to help, you know. Um
1: in, in with in response with the, to prisons with, particularly yeah, well, and criminal that, justice reform?
2: I, well yeah. So I guess like helping us maybe we can transition from like that first bucket both preventative in education but then also as it goes to mm-hmm. you know the prisons themselves you mentioned about well there were prisons that were helping with the civil war effort you know they were it makes maybe sense that people are being productive but then again obviously it hasn't worked now most prisoners as far as i'm aware aren't very productive so just curious like what role do you think you know, private companies can also
1: play so I think they they can um, uh, certainly be involved in educational services and educational mentorship uh, the you know one of the things that I advise people to do when they say I want to help with this issue I mean well two things one is for one know who's in our criminal justice system mm-hmm. most people's conception of who's in prison is just so warped um, and so dehumanized and the If you know this, there isn't change, isn't going to be dramatic change until people care. Mm -hmm. People have to care about this issue, so um, and that's where there's room, certainly, room for a lot of private enterprise. Make people care, help people develop empathy for this, help people see if if the people, you know, everyone could see. The students that I sit in a classroom with in prison week after week, and their incredible accomplishments, and come to love them the way that I do, which hasn't been hard because they're amazing. Then people would advocate at, for change. Um, government policy is a response to the people, mm-hmm. and tough on crime sells. That's why our new attorney general is running around waving it um, because. It sells to people who don't know any better, who don't realize that smart on crime is a far better rally and cry than tough on crime, which is a bereft term. Um, and so likewise, if people cared about prisons, the people in them, if they recognized that they were human beings, if they didn't call them inmates and convicts, but incarcerated people, if they used you know, humanizing terminology. I think film plays a tremendous role here. Narrative, all kinds of creative industries that can get this issue into people's living rooms and, um, and get people to see, not be watching um, MSNBC lockup, which is all about dehumanizing the population, but actually really encounter this on a real level, there's certainly a place for, um, for change in all of that. Uh, and I think the other piece is jobs for people coming home. On a basic level, if I can't get a job coming home, I'm gonna resort to what I know. And uh, and in fact, the bulk of people are being cycled back into the system because of minor parole violations, not even necessarily for committing new crimes, but because we have made parole into this policeman entity that is not effective at providing people su- with support, but does provide them with all kinds of restrictions that it's really easy to break and then get your cycled back into the system to be further damaged, to then have to come home again. And, you know, you can see how the dysfunctional cycle goes there. But offering someone a job, creating access to jobs for people Coming home, um, that is everything. If you own a business or you know someone who owns a business, whatever it is, are they hiring formerly incarcerated people uh, and uh, supporting them on their journey to come back and reintegrate? Uh, housing, there is definitely opportunity. There's holes as far as finding decent housing for people coming home. And uh, and and that would be a tremendous thing that also changes people's lives. Services, letting people know about services. An app. There's. I've heard of some apps being developed around this. I mean, you know, there's no reason you can't um, make money doing good. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: And actually, what's really interesting about this is the, the whole point of perception, right? Um, so many businesses actually specifically ask you know in their, have you ever been arrested let alone you know convicted or whatever have you been arrested because if yes then we're not talking to you you know because they're thinking a ton of applicants why even take a risk so i want to talk about you know perception versus reality so having seen everything you've seen all the stats you've looked at all the research you've done how many people that are convicted would you say are like truly just bad people like this person is maybe it's mental illness or maybe they're just like bad they don't have remorse two, two
1: different things i think okay. but yeah
2: yeah and again so i'm mm-hmm. obviously i'm not the expert on this but like how do you even think about that so there must be i'm thinking no matter how much you know we want everybody to be good and reformable is there like a group that just isn't and like that people need to be, like, kind of, like, cornered off from society at all? Or would you say, no, actually, everybody, there is rehabilitation possibility for everyone? Let's maybe start there, because I want to kind of dispel, because maybe somebody thinks, hey, you're a felon, you're a convict, like, I don't know if I want you in my business or near my family, right? So I just want to get, like, maybe some stats also on, like, how many people are beyond, kind of, Beyond repair, repair yeah. yeah so
1: I think... Um... I, do I think that such a thing exists? Someone who is beyond repair, or someone that is inherently, you know, bad or damaged to the point of not being able to be safe in society? Yes, I do think there is such a thing. Uh, and whether that's, inhar- I don't even know, inherently bad, you know, quite what that means. But it means just inherently damaged to the point of being incapable of, of repaired, and and therefore a, a threat, to to society. Have I ever met that person, no. I have heard cases, you know, I mean, the, the Jeffrey Dahmers and Anders Breivik in Norway who, in the Nazi who killed all those people. I've, I've never met those people. And I can honestly say that I've met uh, many, many people who have committed murder, but I've never met a murderer. And there's a difference between those two. I'm not minimizing remotely the horrific act of taking someone's life. But a murderer is someone who is habitually committing murder. Uh, That is different from someone who has committed the act of murder. And I don't designate that person a murderer. That is not the be-all and end-all of this person's you know essence. And the same is true about why I don't talk about inmate or convict or ex-con. Also just an offensive idea that you are the sum total of your you know bad deed in the world. Uh, That's you know it's inherently offensive and problematic. So I think yes there are people like that who exist who need to be sequestered in some capacity, who are not safe. But that is not who we're filling our prisons with. And that is not what I have seen around the world in terms of who we're filling our prisons with at all. And in terms of um, you know employers and the risk averse factor, uh, there've been some really wonderful studies done showing what incredible employees people coming home from prison make um, because of their, well, it's a whole host of reasons, but um, the passion, the commitments the appreciation of being given that chance, um, the work ethic, the commitment to rebuilding a life. And so there've been a number of employment programs under the Obama administration that used that as a selling point. So it wasn't even like, here, do do us a favor and hire someone who's coming home from prison. Do yourself a favor and hire someone who's come home from prison because they will be the best employee you've ever had in the same way that my incarcerated students are the best students I've ever had.
2: Right, so if you were to just um, put a percentage on it, like. The, I mean, it's interesting, like, given that this is your field, you're saying you haven't even met one person like that. You've heard of them. What's the? What would you say is the percentage of people who have been convicted who are, like, truly beyond repair? 3%. 3% at or most, less? At most. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's very interesting. So, And, and
1: that's a sort of really shot in the dark yeah. estimation. But you, what you're
2: saying is, like, 97, like, vast majority by far are people who yes. caused... Maybe cause harm.
1: Maybe cause dramatic harm, but are, are certainly not. But you know, I have worked in my classroom with students who have committed um, awful acts, and I have watched them through education transform into different human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's. That's only the ones that, you know, really have committed those, those awful acts. I'm also in, quite often more than that, surrounded by people um, who were damaged in life, harmed deeply, victims themselves. Something that most people forget is that the bulk of people in prison, it's not that they're the offenders who have victims. They've been victimized, and then they end up, in turn... Um, committing acts as a response to that the number of men and women especially women this has been well documented who have been subjects of, of physical slash sexual slash emotional abuse as children um, who are victims of you know systemic racism and poverty and then committed these acts so even if disregarding all of that I have stood in classrooms with people who have done dramatically bad things and watched them become better human beings
2: right Absolutely. I think, you know, it's just one of those things where, obviously, that's, like, I think most people would be surprised to hear that, you know, um, they probably way overestimate how many are truly bad and damaging to society.
1: And the labels allow us to do that, right? So when you just call someone an inmate, you're putting everyone in the same category.
2: Yeah. The issue, though, I guess, on the other side of the coin is, you know, humans are notoriously bad at, like, in certain environments that bring the worst out of people people can do some terrible things to their neighbors and everything. Like places like Rwanda where, and there are countless examples, but just there it's like where criminality becomes like, you know, like where society breaks down. Um, So again, like it's one of those things where it's, it seems like it's extremely tied into, you know, if you go to prison and you go back to a community that is just chaotic Mm -hmm you know then it's very likely that you go back and 2.3 million people it's that's, an incredible that's a lot of people
1: and you mentioned uh, Rwanda i mean yeah. i think that's worth pausing on for yeah. a second because i think the other piece that we need to recognize is that is the way that we have promoted punitiveness and we have promoted revenge as part of our culture that does not have to be, and this is where again the humanizing piece comes in. Revenge is such a problematic thing, not only is it morally and ethically problematic, right? An eye for an eye, I teach you to not do harm by doing harm to you. That's inherently you know, hypocritical, um, but revenge is also not satisfying to the victim. And I often point this out, I'm very quick to point this out early on in talking about prisons. This is not about necessarily about, um, only about empathy for the person who did the wrong. It's grounded on empathy for the person who was victimized, for the person who was, the, who experienced the harm, for the survivor mm-hmm. of that harm, because... Our criminal justice system as it stands now is not satisfying for victims. And there are lots of uh, surveys that show this, that crime victims um, and crime survivors are not being made fulfilled by this legal process whereby they're just like a side player. It's not even about them. Um, They're not being made satisfied by somebody being locked up for two decades. Where is that bringing them healing and bringing them um, the repair that they deserve? So our system, it's not only that it's, you know, it's not working in terms of people doing the harm, it's not working for the people who experience the harm as well. Mm-hmm. There's a great st- study that was done by the Alliance for Safety and Justice uh, in, about crime victims that made this exact. Most crime victims don't want more prison sentences. They want services in their communities. They want their needs met. They want counseling and assistance with Um, you know, school and tuition fees, perhaps, that's a void in the life now because maybe my husband was killed, so, etc. I recently, I mean, I meet a lot of uh, people, crime survivors, and talk to them, and uh, have always appreciated them being very forthright with me about what they would want what they what would make them and I met one just the other weekend when I was in Durham a wonderful woman who now works with shoot formerly her brother was murdered and she said she sees the the guy who did it all the time and I said what would you want he he never got brought to, to justice in any way I said what would you want and she said I don't want him to go to prison for what like so he can be further damage come out maybe further damage more people like than I'm doing to him what he did to me none of it makes sense to me. But I really like for him to help out with the tuition fees and maybe even be a kind of um, a, a father figure of some sort to um, the children of my brother who were lost their father as a result of his acts. And in that process, I mean, that was such a beautiful thing to hear. Obviously, it's a very evolved way of thinking, but I do think it speaks to the fact that we are often, we undersell what people are capable of. Um, And we have it all wrong in terms of what we imagine is going to bring people healing and what justice means for people.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, What are some specific ways in which the Ivy audience uh, can support you in your endeavors and also criminal justice reform overall?
1: So one would be uh, literally support, you know, financial support to, to, to the different groups that are doing the work and doing it really well. Um, certainly I, my program is the Prisoner College Pipeline. We're easy to find. We're always taking donations in terms of scholarship money. Can you talk a bit about the program? Yes. So the Prison Prisoner College Pipeline is uh, it's at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, and we offer in- education to incarcerated students throughout New York State. They start their college on the inside, and they're guaranteed a slot in. the uh, CUNY City University of New York system when they come out. And uh, the awesome thing is that they kind of get the best of both worlds. They get education on the inside, making use of their time on the inside within five years of release. And then they also get the benefit of a a college experience on the outside and all the networking and all the great stuff that comes with that. And we also have other initiatives that are around just promoting education and access to education for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated students more generally. So we've got a number of kind of... uh, other initiatives connected to what we do Um, and so we're easy to find our website and we have a donation page on there if people want to give to our scholarship fund we support students uh, as they come home with all kinds of needs Uh, Globetops is a great organization that donates refurbished laptops to different uh, different different entities and they give our students laptops so if you have an old laptop and you want to donate it go to Globetops and designate it for the prison to college pipeline they've been awesome working with us um, so that's what we do. There's uh, an organization called Just Leadership USA that's advocating for policy, massive policy change around this, advocating for the closing of Rikers Island, and also engaged in training in creating leaders, uh, formerly incarcerated leaders all over the state. Through leadership workshops, Just Leadership is fantastic. Cut Fifty is an also another organization around, obviously, cutting the prison population by fifty percent. Uh, and there, you know, the other there, there's New Jim Crow organizations that are wonderful. The Ford Foundation gives a lot of supports, a lot of this work. Um, so those are some things I would mention offhand. The other piece is to give by way of mentorship and being involved, and that's in the before piece and the after piece. If you know someone coming home from prison, or you, um, even if you don't and you want to, reach out to maybe one of the college programs in your state and say, I could hire somebody. Um, I'd be interested in meeting one of your students i could advise them um i'm working to potentially set up a more formal mentoring program for that involves p- people coming home being paired with people in the community so hire formerly incarcerated people seek to do that promote that with others um, and also mentorship in the before end young people who need you know to prevent their they're going that route mm-hmm. and stop the prison to college pipeline before it starts by being a mentor in that community and then also Engage in conversations with people, you know, the whole, it's corny, but each one teach one. Talk to people about this stuff. Think about this stuff. Promote, you know, when someone says inmate in a conversation, question them on that. Um, Change the narrative. Talk differently about this stuff with everyone in your life. And um, through that, you can advocate for, you know, then comes the policy change. And then also, of course stay local, think local in terms of change. Who's your prosecutor? Who's your, who's your, your uh, DA? How stringent is that prosecutor? Are they pursuing smart justice or tough justice? Um, are, are they promoting alternatives and diversions? Or are they just locking people up? So look at the local, I think we tend to get bogged down in thinking Trump and all the big picture stuff, but the bulk of stuff is all about local local jails, local prosecutors, uh, state prisons. The bulk of our prison population, the overwhelming bulk is in state prisons and jails, not in the federal system. So that's really where the change has to occur. And by the way, prisons and jails, this is often a misnomer, so I just want to clarify it. People talk about them interchangeably. They're not the same thing. In a jail, it's not even a, most people in jails are not prisoners. They've not been convicted of anything. They're being detained, they're held. So it's important. 80% of people on Rikers Island have not been convicted of anything. It's not a prison, it's a jail.
2: Got it. Okay, so definitely all the organizations you mentioned will be linking to in this podcast. Um, I think everything you said around volunteering and having these conversations, uh, so through Ivy, both through content like this, but also many in-person gatherings, uh, we hope to do a lot more. excited to introduce you to all of our audience across the country. uh, Great to be introduced. Starting with this. And then, yeah, we'll do a lot more together. Baz, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.